I want to invite Susan to come do our scripture reading for us now. Today's reading is from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah, and rebuilt the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had steered to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealite, and Jeshua, the son of Josadok, made a beginning together with the rest of the kingsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kadmiel and his sons the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asap, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, King of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you today. 
If you have not been with us throughout this year, we've been going through the story of the Bible on Sunday mornings. We started in Genesis with creation. We looked at the fall and humanity rebelling against God. We looked at God choosing a people for himself, uh, Abraham and his family that became the nation of Israel. And then Israel kept refusing to follow God. They were supposed to be his people living in his land under his rule and experience his blessing. And they kept rebelling. They kept not listening. And so God's judgment came. The Babylonian army came through, wiped out their nation, tore down their temple, carried the people off into exile. And the past few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of exile. And today, or all along the way, as we've looked at exile, we've been talking about how the Christian life is a life in exile, that as Christians, this world is not and never, never really will be our home. We are citizens of heaven. And we, like the Israelites in exile, we're all going to face trials and temptations to turn from our God while we live in exile. But like the Israelites in exile, God calls us to be faithful to him as his people. And today, we finally reach the end of the exile. Israel finally has a chance to return home, to rebuild the temple, to another chance to try living as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and to experience God's blessing. So we're going to look at their journey back and their experience rebuilding the temple, and we're going to see what their experience has to teach us about coming into God's presence today. And what we're going to see is that God's people are marked by a longing for his presence. God's people are marked by a longing for his presence. We're going to look at sacrifice to be in God's presence, submission to God's standards, and standing for God even when we can't see. But before we jump in and look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word gives life to your people. What a blessing it is to be able to have your word freely available to us, to be able to read it each day and interact with it and hear you speaking to us through it. So we pray right now, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Show us your truth. Shape us into your image. Help us to love you more and trust you more as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, sacrifice to be in God's presence. The past few weeks, like I said, we've been talking about exile. Exile was a difficult time for the people of Israel. Think about it. They were dragged out of their homes. They watched their family and friends get slaughtered. And then they were dragged away to a foreign land as slaves, banned from returning home. And so as they were in the foreign land, I'm sure they would think back to their life before being in exile. But even then, it had to be a painful experience to remember that life no longer existed. The world that you grew up in is gone. It would be horrible. It would be so difficult. And I don't want to downplay the significance of that difficulty. It might sound like that by what I'm about to say. Other than all that horrible, horrible stuff, life in exile in Babylon wasn't too bad. I realize that's, that's a huge caveat. But in Babylon, as long as the Israelites stayed in Babylon and didn't try to go back to Israel, they were more or less allowed to just continue with their normal daily lives. We see from Jeremiah 29 that they were allowed to own property while they were in exile. They were able to work. They were able to have families. They were able to settle in and make this land of exile their new home. 
That's actually what the Babylonians wanted them to do. They wanted the Israelites to settle in, get comfortable, forget about the fact that you're Israelites and start just thinking about yourselves as Babylonians. And God actually told the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, settle in, make yourselves at home for the duration of the time that you're in exile. And so for that first generation of people in exile, that would have been really hard because you're surrounded by the people who just killed your family and friends and dragged you off into slavery. But for the second generation and the third generation, it would be increasingly easier. For the t- by the time we reach today's passage, the Israelites have been in Babylon for generations. Kings have come and gone. An empire has fallen. The Persian empire has taken over from the Babylonian empire. And, and so King Cyrus, the Persian king, comes in and he tells the Israelites, you can go home. You can go back to Israel. You can rebuild the temple. It's an exciting opportunity but it's an opportunity that's actually going to require a lot of sacrifice on their part. Because by the time we reach today's passage, most of the Israelites who are alive in exile have never lived in Israel. They were born in Babylon. It's the only home they've ever known. For a lot of them, even their parents were born in Babylon. Their family has been there for generations. And as exciting as it would be to go back to Israel, think about what you'd have to do. You'd have to leave your job, your source of stable income to go back to a place that's now a wasteland. You'd be leaving your house, the house that your family has possibly lived in for a couple generations, to go back to a place where you're going to be living in a tent until you can build yourself a new house with your own two hands. You'd be leaving behind the bulk of the family and friends that you have, knowing that it's quite likely you're never going to see them again. And you'd be setting off on a trip that would take several months to complete and was known to be a quite dangerous journey. There, if you did the trip quickly, you could get it done in four months. This was a difficult journey that they were going on. It was dangerous. Moving to Jeruz- from Babylon to Jerusalem would not have been like moving from somewhere else to Hong Kong today. I moved to Hong Kong 11 years ago. I was a university student when I came here which meant I had a very low credit limit on my credit card. And my mom, before I left, she said, Eric, you need to call up the bank, get them to increase your credit limit on your credit card so that if anything goes wrong while you're in Hong Kong, you have access to money that you can go to the airport, buy a ticket, hop on the next plane home, and be here within 24 hours. If you were going from Babylon to Jerusalem, you could not do that. That was not an option. It would have been more like the settlers going on the Oregon Trail in America back in the 1800s. They made a video game about that a few years ago. Did any of you ever play the game Oregon Trail? So basically the premise is you're a settler, you're you're trying to move west across the unsettled Americas, and literally the whole goal of the game is to stay alive till you reach your destination. And so many things can go wrong. You can run out of food. You can get swept away in a flood. You could be raided by a raiding band. You could catch dysentery and die. Just reaching the destination in and of itself is a major accomplishment. That's kind of like what their journey from Babylon to Jerusalem would have been. It was an exciting opportunity, but it required a ton of sacrifice and risk on the people who were going. And why would they be willing to take those sacrifices and make that risk. It wasn't for financial success or advancement. They were going from the center of the known world to a place that had become a backwoods. 
They were going from a place where they were secure and stable to a place where the walls had been torn down. Raiders could get in and attack them with nothing to stop them or slow them down. Why would you make that sacrifice? Why would you go back there? It's to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the dwelling place of God on earth. And I realize, let me just clarify up front, God is present everywhere. But in the Old Testament, God made it clear that somehow he dwelt in a special way with his people in the temple. So, such a way that they could genuinely refer to it as the house of God on earth. The Israelites returning from exile, they knew going back home would require sacrifice and risk and it would be hard, but they said it was worth it to make those sacrifices and take those risks because of the opportunity to be in God's presence. Because God's people are marked by a desire to be in God's presence. So I wanna ask you this morning, do you have a desire to be in God's presence? Have you ever considered the idea of, of making sacrifices or taking risks to be in God's presence? And I realized like on one level, Hong Kong is a free society. We have the freedom to come here, to worship together. We're not in danger of being imprisoned or like kicked out of jobs because we show up at church together on Sunday morning. But the reality is that for many of us, if we really want to, to gather together and be in God's presence together as his people, it's gonna take sacrifice and risk. And that could look different for different people. For example, for some of us, it could be sacrificing the chance to sleep in on Sunday mornings so we can be up on time to go to church. And I realize the people who probably need to hear that most are the ones who aren't in this room at this moment. Maybe they'll podcast this sermon and hear it later. I don't know. But if you're one of those people who just struggles to wake up on Sunday morning, I'm not trying to downplay. I, I realize I love sleeping in. But I want to ask you, which is more important to you? the chance to get together with God's people in God's presence or the chance to get a little more sleep on Sunday morning. If God's presence and being together with his people is our priority, then we will make sacrifices to prioritize that. And the sacrifice may even start before Sunday morning. It may be that we need to prioritize how we make our plans on Saturday night so that we can be in bed on time to be up on Sunday morning. It may mean saying no to some social in interactions because we need to be in bed at a reasonable hour. And that might involve another level of risk where we're risking our social status with friends and risking looking bad in front of them because we've said no to their invitation. But is that a risk and a sacrifice that's worth it to you? For others of us, the sacrifice that it will take to be in God's presence is a different one. The Bible is clear that sin is a, a barrier to God's presence and blessing in our lives in this special way. For example, did you know the Bible says that God resists the proud? It's a very strong statement, right? But think about what that means. Anytime we look at someone else and we just think, I'm better than this person, we're putting ourselves in a place where God resists us. Anytime we look at someone else and we think, I don't need to take this person as seriously because of the job that they do or the color of their skin, we're putting ourselves in a place where God resists us. Anytime we have a fight with our spouse and we lash out in anger and we say, I'm not gonna apologize until they do because they started it, we're putting ourselves in a place where God resists us. 
Anytime we do any of these things or anything else that's acting with pride, we're cutting ourselves off from God's presence and blessing in our lives. And if we want God's presence actively at work in our lives, it's going to require us repenting of our pride and our other sins, letting go of them, humbling ourselves, and reorienting ourselves uh, the way we see the world to the way God sees it. That's a sacrifice. That's hard. It means letting go of standing up for and protecting ourselves and trusting God to do that for us. But the Israelites returning from exile in today's passage, they recognized being in God's presence was so important and valuable that they were willing to give up everything to get it. So let me ask you, are you willing to make sacrifices and take risks necessary for you to be in a place where you can experience more of God's presence and blessing in your life life today? Because God's people are marked by a desire to be in God's presence. But that's not the only thing we see in this passage about God's presence and what it takes to, to meet with him and experience his presence. The second thing we see is submission to God's standards. The Israelites, as they returned from exile, were willing to submit to God's way of doing things in order to be in his presence. If you look throughout the Bible, specifically, you see this often in the earlier parts of the Old Testament. God is very, very precise about how sinful humanity is allowed to come into his presence. In moves that seem totally shocking and not okay to 21st century sensibilities, on multiple occasions, God strikes people dead for trying to come to him in the wrong ways. We don't talk about that much in the church because we like a, a God who is loving and friendly and warm. But on multiple occasions, God strikes people dead on the spot, in the moment, for trying to come to him in the wrong ways. And Israel, in this passage, they're coming out of an exile that they were sent into because they failed to relate to God properly. And now they're being given a second chance, so they're determined to get it right. And we can see them take steps throughout chapter three here to get things right. They put the Levites in charge of the construction work. The Levites were the tribe of Israel that God set apart to be in charge of the objects and buildings for worship. And so setting them apart to oversee this building project was the exile's way of aligning themselves with God's expressed desire for proper obedience and worship and proper order in worship. And then they followed the guidelines for worship that God had revealed to previous generations. In verse 10, we see that the priests wore special clothes for this ceremony and they played the instruments that God had called them to use in their worship. They praised the Lord in verse 10, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Their worship was not a free-for-all. It wasn't just a collective show of self-expression. It's a submission to the commandments and instructions that God had revealed to them in the past for how they were to come into his presence. And it involves submission to God's commands. It involves submission to the leaders that God had called to lead his people in worship. And I realize in our society, submit is basically a four-letter word. It's a bad word that we don't like. We don't like having people call for us to submit. But even in the New Testament, Jesus is clear that if we're going to worship God properly, we must submit to God's standards in our worship. 
Just one quick example, John chapter 4, 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I realize we could unpack that verse over several sermons. We don't have time to go that in depth today. But just one or two implications from this verse for our worship today. God is spirit. That means God is completely unknowable to us unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. We can't do a scientific experiment to prove that God is there. So in order for us to know God, it has to start with God showing us who he is, which means any true worship has to be a response to who God has shown himself to be, to what God has revealed of himself to us, either through creation or more primarily through his word, the Bible. Which means that if our worship ignores what God says about himself in the Bible, it's not true or proper worship. Or one other implication of this verse in John 4.24, Jesus says that God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. And John tells us later on that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Which means all true worship comes through Jesus. Non-Christian worship is false worship. Worship that tries to come to God through the greatness of our own efforts and accomplishments is false worship. Even for us today, living after Jesus has come, proper worship is always going to submit to God's revealed will about what worship looks like and how it operates. And I realize again, there's an entire sermon series packed into that one sentence. And there's a lot of freedom for what worship can look like within those boundaries. But at the most basic heart level, True and proper worship always submits to God's revealed will about what worship will look like. And if we want to experience God's presence, we have to align our worship with what he calls for it to be. The returned exiles show through their example that proper worship is willing to submit to God's standards in order to be in God's presence. And then the third thing we see about the return exiles and being in God's presence is this idea of standing for God even when we can't see. Like I said, their return from exile was primarily for the sake of rebuilding the temple. And if we're not really familiar with the story of the Bible, that may not seem like a big deal to us because we don't have a temple today. We don't go to a temple to worship. The temple has been torn down and not rebuilt for like 2,000 years. But if you zoom out and look at the Bible's story from a really wide angle, the temple is one of the main themes that runs all throughout the story of the Bible from the first page to the last. And this theme of the temple actually boils down to one of the deepest desires of the human heart, the desire to be in God's presence. There's this longing deep within each of our hearts. It's hardwired into us from creation to be in God's presence. The theologian Augustine, he addressed this when he said, our hearts are restless, O God, until we rest in you. There's this restlessness inside of us that's just a longing for God's presence. And until we get there, it's just gonna be restless inside of us. Or C.S. Lewis, he talked about this desire inside of us that nothing in this world can satisfy that tells us that we were created for another world. There's a desire inside each of us to be in God's presence. And that that desire ties into the story of the temple in the Bible. Because in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He makes man and woman in his image. And he places them in a special place called the Garden of Eden, which is basically a temple. 
because the temple's where you go to meet with God. And God comes and walks with Adam and Eve in the garden and talks with them. They have conversations with him there. And that's why life in the garden is so special. That's why when they rebel against God and get banished from the garden, it's such a big deal and such a big loss because not, they're not just losing paradise, they're losing God's presence. And the whole rest of the story of the Bible is answering that question, how do we get back? If you look at the rest of the book of Genesis, God will occasionally show up to people, but it's random, seemingly random from the human perspective of when that's gonna happen. It's totally unpredictable. A lot of times people don't even realize it's happened until after God has already left. And so when we get to the book of Exodus, there's a major step in the direction of getting back into God's presence. God frees the Israelites from Egypt so that they can go into the desert and worship him. They get out of their slavery. They go to the desert and God gives them instructions to build this tent called the tabernacle where he is gonna live among them and it's gonna be awesome. So they build this tent and they have a ceremony to, to have a grand opening dedication of this tent. And in the ceremony, this cloud comes down and covers the entire tent so thick that no one can get in and God's presence is there. And it's gotta be like the most terrifying thing ever and the most awesome thing ever to see that. Like terrifying because God is here and I feel like I'm gonna die. But awesome because God is here among us. How great is that? So they have this temple. God's dwelling among them. A few hundred years go by and King David's like, I wanna build God a more permanent home. Not just a tent, a house. And God says, that's a great desire, but your son's gonna do it. So Solomon, David's son, builds this beautiful, elaborate, ornate, intricate temple to be the dwelling place of God on earth. And again, they have the dedication ceremony, the grand opening, and as Solomon is praying, a cloud comes down from heaven and fills the entire temple and everyone sees God's presence is here among us and it's awesome. And almost immediately after that, things just start to go bad. Solomon marries foreign wives who lead him to worship foreign gods. He builds idols for the worship of foreign gods. And over the next several hundred years, Israel just spirals out of control into false worship till we reach the point of exile, like we've been talking about the past few weeks. The Babylonians come in to take Israel into captivity. And as part of that process, they tear the temple down brick by brick. A lot of the horror of exile wasn't just being dragged away from your home, seeing the world that you knew destroyed and being separated from your friends and family. A lot of the horror was seeing the dwelling place of God on earth reduced to rubble. And to make matters worse, the prophet Ezekiel around this time had a prophetic vision of God's spirit leaving the temple. So the house where God lived among us no longer exists. And even if it did, his spirit's gone. He's not there anymore. He's moved out. How can we get back into God's presence? And that's why Cyrus's decree that they would rebuild the temple was such a big deal to the Israelites. Because for the first time in decades, we can rebuild the temple and have a place where God can live among us, we hope. We can take a step back towards being in his presence, fulfilling this desire of our hearts. That's why in chapter three, when they get the foundation laid, they have this ceremony with so much joy and excitement because we're making progress towards being back in God's presence, but they have a problem. 
They have two separate dedication ceremonies for this new temple. One is here in chapter three when they get the foundation laid. The second one is in chapter six when they get the complete building built. And there's something majorly important that's missing in both of these ceremonies. No cloud comes down from heaven to fill the temple in either of these ceremonies. God's presence that had descended in such a a visible, tangible way for the tabernacle and the first temple doesn't come to the new temple in the same way. And in response to this, it would be natural for them to be filled with doubts and questions like, where is God? Has he left us forever? Is he ever going to come back to us? And we can see this angst and disappointment here in chapter three. The people are celebrating because they've got the foundation laid, but all the old people start crying uncontrollably. And it's so loud because something is missing. Something that's a core essential part of what it means for the temple to be a temple is not here. They don't give up. They continue the construction project. They, they finish building the temple. They try to remain faithful to God, even though they don't have this, this evidence or proof that God has accepted their worship. And for the following 500 years, there's lots of ups and downs in Israel's worship and their faithfulness to God. But all along, these questions remain. Where is God? Has he left us forever? Is he ever going to come back to us? And then, late one night, in the town of Bethlehem, a baby is born. This baby is called Emmanuel. God with us. Because in this baby, God himself took on human flesh. God came and lived among humanity, not in a building, but as a living, breathing human being. God was with us again. And for the first time since Eden, common everyday people like you and me could walk with God and have a conversation with him. And humanity couldn't stand it. They hated God's presence among them, so they killed him. But in the moment of Jesus' death, something amazing happened. See, all along, the tabernacle and the temple, they had a special room within them where God's presence dwelled. And then outside that room was the place where people could be. And between, there was this huge series of blackout curtains to keep anyone from getting in there. And if you went in where God's presence was, you died. And in the moment when Jesus died, all those curtains were torn in two. Every barrier between you and me having access to God's presence was wrecked once and for all. Because of the death of Jesus, you and I can now have what the returned exiles so desperately longed for, proof of the presence of God in our lives which is an awesome gift. It's an awesome privilege. That's why we can sacrifice to be in God's presence and submit to God's commands for worship. It's not that somehow we're earning God's love or approval through our effort. It's that God has graciously come to us and given us the greatest privilege in the world, the opportunity to be in his presence. And not only does God give us access to his presence, but he now sends his Holy Spirit to live inside his followers, which means If you are a Christian, you are now the place where God dwells among humanity. You and I are a walking, living, breathing temple. And the great promise of the Bible and hope of the Christian life is that one day we'll live in a new heavens and a new earth, and there won't be a temple there because God himself will live with us forever. It'll be everything that Eden was supposed to be, but without everything going wrong this time. 
just as the Israelites couldn't physically see God's presence in the temple, we can't physically see God's presence today. We have a promise from Jesus that he will be with us always as long as we're alive on the earth. And because of that promise, that restlessness and angst that comes from being outside God's presence never has to be part of our lives because God now lives inside us. And we bring his presence into every situation that we enter. If you're a Christian, whenever you step into a room, you bring the presence of Jesus with you. Have you ever realized that before? I think that's something that would really transform the way we live if we understood that. If you are a Christian, anytime you step into a room, you bring the presence of Jesus with you. That's part of why meeting in person for church is so vital because when we meet in person, we bring the presence of Jesus to one another. You can't bring the presence of God to one another by sitting at home and watching a YouTube video of a great church service. It could be a great church service, but you're missing something. You're missing that physical presence of Jesus with other people. But when we meet in person, I bring the presence of Jesus to you and you bring the presence of Jesus to me. We have God's presence among us. Even if we can't see it, God is true to his word. He is with us today. So church, let me ask you, do you long for God's presence in your life? I think whether we're aware of it or not, all of us have that longing. All of us have this this restlessness in our hearts, this desire that nothing on earth can satisfy. And the answer is not to just give up and be like, well, nothing on earth can fulfill it. I'm never gonna get that wish fulfilled. It's to come into God's presence, to be near him and praise God that he's made a way for us to enter his presence through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that just as we have a desire to be in your presence, you have a desire for us to be in your presence and you've made a way to make that possible. Pray that we would prioritize coming into your presence, whether that's making sacrifices to be in your presence, whether that's submitting to your call for what it takes to worship you, whether that's standing for you even though we can't see you, God. I pray that being in your presence would be a priority for us as your people. We would grow in our love for you and be a blessing to one another through it. In Jesus' name, amen.